Hello and welcome to Public Access America. This is Just the Tip. Hey everybody, welcome to Just the Tip in Public Access America. I am actually recording this ahead of the show and it made me think Just the Tip would be a good time to check your audio levels is before you actually do everything. So I always take a half hour and I check my computer volumes, I check my scarlet volumes, and I check my microphone volumes. Those are all volumes as well as the Zoom connection that you should uh, check before you actually go on air. You know, you want to keep your uh, audio consistent. And Jeffrey has a headset that keeps consistent, and now I do too. And so it's really exciting that we can provide you that audio quality. So thank you for being here. Let's get into the show. This is a good one. Jeffrey's an expert on a lot of this stuff. No, no. I just haven't had enough coffee to use my brain yet today. It's time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. Problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. Of conscience. Because that is how it works. This is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here, and that's why we rally, 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 rally. We've got to be that creative minority, creative minority, creative minority. Find a way to get in the way. I got in trouble. It was good trouble. It was necessary trouble. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. Coffee's going to be my top of mind, too. So, hello and welcome to Public Access America. My name is Kid Rock. No, of course, it's Jason. I just love that song. His name is Jeffrey, but we can call him all sorts of things. He doesn't seem to mind. Yeah, I quit. I quit coffee. Like, yesterday, I just, I was like, this is what's hurting. Like, four Mm -hmm. cups of coffee a day. What the? So, I just, I stopped and, like, Today, I feel really, really, really good. And I think that's unique to my case, not to everybody's case, but a happier Jason is always a nice thing to have, you know? Well, and for me, like I, you know, I grew up with the whole just swilling coffee all morning yeah. until, you know, you were done. And I actually noticed that I was in a lot of pain too. Um, so I went from drinking essentially what was a half a pot of coffee in one shot mm-hmm. to, I will drink one cup of coffee in the mornings when I go to work. And then sometimes on the weekends, I'll have two cups. So, so like yeah. this morning's a two cup sort of morning. I believe it. Yeah. And you're still young. You know what I mean? It's just pain. To- I certainly don't feel that way. <laughs> pain like terraforms the soul, I like to say. And then so it's nice to like find something out. I told my, I told my friend, I was like, I would love to go to the hospital and go on a conveyor belt and run through it until they fixed me, but I can't afford that. You know what I mean? I have to come Wait, up. Why do I keep getting the anal probe? Yeah, I've, I have had more probes in my genitals and rectum than any man should have, you know? And it was always different I answers. I understand that. And if anybody just said, dude, eight cups of coffee? No. You know, <laughs> drink some water in right. there. Maybe, yeah. So... I, I've been telling doctors for the past five years, I want a nutritionist. Like, it's not you. You need, you need to treat me once my, I'm baseline. But I'm never going to be baseline if there's nobody telling me what... What's I'm, the baseline? <laughs> yeah, what's wrong? Like, my baseline was eating salad for eight months. Now I know that was wrong because it was coffee. I wasted a lot of time. But a nutritionist might have said, all right, well, you're heavy on the coffee. You're low on the fiber. Switch those, you know? <laughs> Right. You know, and, and, and for me, it's like kind of trying to figure out what that balance is, you know, uh, I probably haven't had the greatest eating habits as of late, but you know, it's, and, and, and what I mean by that is, is that I kind of, I changed up my breakfast routine a little bit, Mm. but you know, uh, I'm still like holding steady slash losing a little bit of weight. So it's not like it's, I mean, I definitely need to do better, but it's also kind of one of those things where it's like, I I have also been happy, um, happy ish, you know, with, with my food choice, right? because I, like, I feel good in the morning. Like I don't, I don't feel weighed down. I don't feel like I'm sluggish. 
but at the same time too, it's like, yeah, yeah, I probably should not just do what I'm currently doing. <laughs> I don't know. But, if you want to feel sluggish, do it. And if it seems like a chore, then, you know, you gotta, you gotta balance that, the joy yep. with the hate, you know what I mean? And the other thing is all of that, all of those foods are chemi- turned into chemicals that run our, mm-hmm. run our body, right? And so yep. for you, your chemical balance is different than my chemical balance. And so right. when we discuss these things, I think it's interesting because I always keep an individual perspective because I wonder if there's others out there like that. But even the others that are suffering from coffee like I was or am or whatever, they suffer in a diff- different ways and they need different nutrition well, I mean, chemicals. Well, I mean, let's think about this from from a historical objective you know you, like especially out here um where we have a lot of native american tribes mm. you know whose diet you know really depended on fish a lot of the time yeah you know there's there's been a lot of question in the native american uh, community about whether or not the lack of fish in the diet has been hurting them i mean if you've got tribes that have been living here for ten thousand years you know, it's real hard to it's real hard to sit down and say, well, no, you know, they've evolved really quickly to not have that as a part of their diet. Right. Nobody evolves that really quickly. And and I mean, you look at all the different types of people out there, you know, you've got hunter gatherers, you've got agriculturalists, you've got, you know, foragers, nomadic groups. Yeah. You've got, you know, groups that have, you know, depended on food from the sea. You've got groups that have depended on bison. You've got groups that have depended upon grains. Yeah. You know, it's the idea that, to me, the idea that, it, you know, homogeneously, we all just need one simple set of things just doesn't necessarily make sense. Right. Now, you get into, you know, what is now the globalized economy and, you know, for, you know, you know, tens of thousands of years you had people who were pretty well homogenous they didn't you know really mix with other cultures Mm -hmm. uh you know other you know other essential tribes outside of their own right and now that you have that mix you know you have that question i i do think of you know as we've seen in, in more recent years you know this whole craze of only eating meat or only eating vegetables or only eating yeah and it's like uh you know it to me, it's one of those things where the the nutritional needs of every person has is so varied as it so is. So varied, yes. So, who's to say that you know somebody who you know doesn't have you know uh, you know one set of you know DNA lineage mm-hmm. doesn't need more fish or one set of you know it's like we all know those people that you know have you know they always have had certain things or always done certain things uh, you know and and they feel better doing those things and so for me it's it's just kind of that that general question of you know who are we really you know that's that's a good point yeah and genetically it's hard to answer that question you know and and i think that's been like one of the weird things about you know the the do-it-yourself dna kits figuring out where you come from like excusing all of the privacy you know issues for a moment mm-hmm. trying to figure out you know who who am i you know genetically who am i where did i where did i come from you know the, there is the grand question of you know did you know do people that come from the british isles have a certain set of dietary needs do people who come from you know the more germanic tribes a certain set of dietary needs what about the mediterranean what about turkish what about yeah. you know people who come from the middle east what about people who come from the heart of africa you know it's it's just it's it's a really interesting idea to me but at the same time too it's also one that i can see any number of bad actors deciding to take that information and you know how try to you know pose eugenics 2.0 yeah I'm thinking about like the Bahamas because that's where the sugar cane is, right? Like a lot of people just didn't have sugar like that in their lives. I can't imagine another place that grows sugar cane to where like pre-Europeans right. would have been ingesting a lot of sugar. And then I see why it was really popular, but I'm wondering like, yeah, you're, you're right. If we could figure out, I'm sitting here figuring like my dad was Italian, my grandma was French. You know, like going through all these things and yeah, I feel better eating meat. You know what I mean? Well, and, and, you know, you look at, 
even just like some of the interesting anecdotes. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, Debbie and I took a walk with Billy and I was, you know, being somebody who's, you know, always interested in plants, nat- like native wild growth, I saw, you know, one plant and I'm like, it looks like blackberry, but the, you know, I bet that's salmonberry. And so I start Ooh. looking at it. Sure enough, it's salmonberry. And so like, I start looking to see, you know, why do they call it salmonberry? Because, you know, I guess, you know, the berry flesh does look like, you know, if you peel open a salmon, it does have that like orange right. you know, color to the meat. Okay. Well, apparently salmonberry, they actually, you know, the Quileute tribe out here actually used to use the leaves of salmonberry to wrap their fish oh. when they cooked it to give it uh, an enhanced flavor. And I was like, huh, neat. I like that. Interesting. The Mediterranean does so, that with grape leaves, and I love that. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so there's, you know, you have all of these different questions about how, you know, different foods impact the body, mm-hmm. you know, why, you know, like at, at a fundamental level, we all know it's like, Hey, you know, raw sugars from, you know, raw fruits and vegetables process better than, you know, processed sugars right? because they're more complex. But then when you look at it, it's like, well, why, you know, all of these different ways that they used to cook different things, the question is, is what's been lost over time. And so for me, like reading how, you know, one, one tribe out here used the leaves of salmonberry in order to, you know, cook their fish mm. is, was really interesting to me, you know, because, because yeah. apparently it adds an enhanced flavor profile. It, it isn't fish. about like, the berry at all. There's, there was a, right. a study that said like they compared, I don't, I can't remember. It was, I read this about 10 years ago, but people, they, 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 they used to hunt and expel energy to hunt. And so when they learned to cook their meat and learned to store their meat and learned to get grains and have food supplies readily at hand, they didn't use the energy hunting. So their brains developed more than, say, a gorilla who still just basically hunts all day for sustainment and food and uses that energy for body, not mind. And so I think a lot of what we miss is like the, the preparation, the, you know, the task, the, the energy it takes to get the food because it's so easy, you know, it's too, there's there's actually two parts to that. There's actually two parts to that. One and another part even goes even more primitive than that. And, and that is the fact that, you know, one of the things about, um, one of the things, you know, our, our primitive ancestors figured out was, is that, eating raw meats took a lot of energy right however um when they cooked that meat it actually took less energy to digest that right that that food and and so that'll that allowed the body to use that energy to improve different functions of the you know of the body like the brain yeah um, and when your immune system so, isn't trying to attack you because you're eating raw meat then you can you feel healthier and better better you know right and, and so that's so that's where it's always really interesting is like you know we've you know uh, you know as as humans have evolved because of different you know advantages that we've been presented over the years like Mm -hmm. the ability the ability to cook our food the ability to grow our own you know fruits and vegetables and grains and all that the ability to go from having to chase uh chase animals in order to survive to being able to figure out how to pen them in and just raise them and call them as needed right which then, of course, gets into I think one of the notes that you wanted to talk about, which is our food, our food, well, and yeah. what's in it. But you just segued into both things. I really, we support local farmers, right? We su- mm-hmm. support Absolutely. local farms. We support bringing the means of production for vegetables, and fruit, and even meat to inner city food deserts, right? And so, mm-hmm. I think we have a rub. There's a there's an account in defense of animals USA on Twitter. And they keep sending this stuff like the bullfighting, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and like the chick calling, I think we're always going to land on the humanity, the humane dignity and death and the purpose of the animal. A farmer raises its pig and, and there's a cost to that. And he doesn't, he doesn't hurt the pig. He doesn't, do anything like that but then the pig has purpose and it lives and it's happy but as it declines yes 
eventually the farmer's going to give it dignity and death and and it's going to go on for a bigger purpose and i think it i will i will add this you know not every not every farmer of course is you know practices that sort of right i'm speaking not mass production right well i mean even in mass production surprisingly there there really is a lot of care um but you know there's there's always a point there's always a tipping point and and realistically speaking you know i mean any any rational meat eater should you know should be appalled if the animals are mistreated to a certain extent, right. you know, mistreated, you know, like, um, whether there's beatings, whether, you know, their, their hooves are rotting, whether mm-hmm. there's, you know, whether they're not being treated for open wounds and things like that. Yeah. I mean, there are, there, you know, there's, there's a respect and care for animals that most, most ranchers, I will say have, right. you know, because not because it's, you know, uh, it, it's part, you know, because you know, growing up uh, with life and death surrounding you constantly, you know, you do have an element of compassion to you, but also too, like, if you don't take care of your animals, that's, that's your food, that's your money. Right. And, you know, at best you lose one animal at worst you either you might lose multiple and your reputation might go down the mm-hmm. shitter you could get charged for animal abuse i mean right there are some states out there that are you know I mean, some very conservative states out there that are very aggressive about how people treat their animals um and and i think that's important it's just that unfortunately you have this the, the question of what is humane right in the culling of animals and you have a group of people who say culling them at all is inhumane right and then we should so, just and not eat them at all but that leaves them which, no purpose right to me it do- and it doesn't leave it leaves them, them no purpose it leaves them no natural predator and what you end up having is then an overpopulation of the animal and then disease runs rampant through the animals and then they die a pretty gruesome and horrific death because number one they've relied on humanity to give them their you know let's say their their right. uh their shots in order to keep them healthy, the treatments in order to keep them from, you know, developing sores and any number of different things. You know, because, you know, most people don't realize that flies really attack cattle really hard. Yeah. And if you don't treat their ears and if you don't treat them, it looks pretty fucking nasty and they can get some really bad infections. Right. And I'm not talking so, about people that treat their animals like that. You know what I mean? No, no, no. And But I mean, even when you're doing your best to try and treat your animals, you know, those flies can be pretty vicious. Yeah, because they and, evolve and so, too, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, but if you, but with cattle, if you leave them, if you leave them with no natural predator, you see what, ha- you'll see the same thing that happens within like deer populations. You know, a disease will start to run rampant, and then instead of mm-hmm. you know having a herd that's contained and controlled and you know taken care of, now you just have a diseased pestilence that is running rampant through an area, yeah. and that's I would argue even less humane than if you were to just actually take care of the population, call as you need to, and and you know I would say mm-hmm. you know work work that system a lot more. Uh, extensively scientifically humanely yeah and knowing the process you know what i mean and that's just it nobody you know i won't say nobody there have been far too many people who don't understand that raising these animals is a lot of work and even for farmers and ranchers when you have to call an animal it's there's still an emotional element to it because you know, this is, you know, this is something that you invest your time and money into, but there's also a thankful element to it. Like for us, you know, we'd have cows every year that, you know, they just got too old. They're not, you know, they're not calving right. anymore. They've timed and, out just like people do. And, and, and so those are the ones that, you know, they get, you know, they get a nice happy end of life where, you know, they're, they were free range essentially, yeah. you know, inside of, inside of a large, you know, barbed wire enclosure in Eastern Montana. And then when it was time, you know, we we took them off to be, you know, butchered. Right. You know, that was just the way that it was. So, real quick, that's what the running of the bulls is. It's exactly what you described, right? And I think the running of the bulls is a really interesting thing because I've always had a problem with it. Really, I did too yes. until I actually researched and, you know, wrote that note that I sent you. And mm-hmm. I really did. I didn't understand it. But when you look at the tradition of it, it's kind yep. of cool. And then when you follow it through to the end result, 
it has uh, to me it has a happy ending because those bulls go on to feed the entire population of Spain in one way or another at other festivals throughout mm-hmm. the year. You know, for me the issue was always that uh, number one, you know. I'm going to leave humanity like people jumping in front of a, a large animal <laughs> right? Uh, because that's, that's Darwin award material for me. But number two, um, during the process, there's usually a, f- a few bulls that get injured. Like they'll break legs, yeah. okay. they'll, they'll break their necks. To me, that's the part that I've always had a problem with because, you know, growing up on a ranch, like with my bulls, you know, when it was time to call them, you know, I wasn't going to run them down the street and see if they number one hit anybody right. or number two fell and broke a leg. Good point. Like there was, there was an, you know, like I understand that it's, uh, that that's tradition. And, and I understand that, you know, I mean, it's a very long, long, long tradition. Yeah, if I remember yeah. correctly. And most of these are four to six steer bull bulls. Mm-hmm. So, but I, yeah. I, that is a point I didn't even consider. How interesting. So, I mean, that's the problem that I've always had. It's, you know, I think... Not the bull fight like, afterwards. I, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's, 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 that's an interesting one, too, because, you know, for me, you know, as a hunter, as a conservationist, yeah. putting, putting an animal down as quickly and humanely as possible is the ultimate goal. Right. Like, you know, you know at, least, at least with, like, say, American rodeos, for example... There's there's never a goal of having the bull get killed or you know anything like that. Right, shit happens, and you can you can talk about and make the argument about whether or not the whole thing is humane and whether it's animal exhibition. That's there's certainly there's certainly an argument to be made about that. Absolutely, okay. but at least with American Rodeo, the goal was never to have you know the animals get injured during the process. Right, it happens. Whereas you know some of these traditions. The, absolutely, that's what you were after. Is is that you wanted the bull to, essentially, you know, self self uh, unalive. Okay, right. And, Tire itself out until it gives up and presents itself to you to die. Or, or you know, in some cases, they you know there would be play, you know they try to run them into certain walls so that way they'd break their neck and things like that. Wow. You know, that's there's there's always you know for for me it's it's just that like. I understand that taking an animal's life isn't for everybody. Right. But for those of us who've done it multiple times, it's about doing it as quickly as possible to keep the animals from suffering. Okay. That's the dignity. Exactly. And going on to feed other people is purpose. Like I I wrote down here, I can see the soul in an animal's eyes, but I also know from um, growing and learning that purpose is the meaning of life, even for animals. And so giving them, Dignity in life, dignity in death, and purpose throughout that. I like mm-hmm. that. And feeding community to me is is a purpose that that's well represented, and that animal should be proud. You know, you know, and and for me, like the bull, you know, with the whole quote unquote bullfight, you know, if it's as long as it's just like the showmanship of the matador, and they're right. you know the end goal you know, in the ring is not, you know, trying to get the animal to kill itself or, you know, taking pot shots at the animal with a sword in order to kill it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm fine with the showmanship. I mean, I, I can't sit there and say, well, American rodeo, but Spanish bullfight. Right. Like, right, right. like, I can't, I can't do that, you know, but the showmanship of it, absolutely. Like, I think the showmanship of it is absolutely beautiful. I think it's a fantastic tradition in that realm. Yeah. But no, yeah. really, for me, my concern is always going to be that, if if the goal of the an, if the goal is that the animal dies at the end, mm-hmm. then I I want it to be done as quickly and humanely as possible. That goes for that goes for cattle in any any part of the world, Agreed. as well as you know as as somebody who's a hunter. You know my goal is always that you know if an animal is to die, it needs to die quickly and humanely. Agreed. I I put down six six injured in bull run, but all bulls die. You know, <laughs> right? Like yes, and that—that's what I have an issue with. It's the—it's what you just described—the sword at the end, the tiring the, tiring the animal out so it gives up. You know, like right. that to me is an animal in fear, not an animal. And the other thing is these 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 bulls are—they're driven to town to be sold for bullfights or mm-hmm. food, right? Right or other right. other. They didn't say what no. the other was, but somebody also said these steers are pretty crappy meat 
takes a long time to cook it. They cook it in red wine and then they put it in a stew for another day. So it's like 48 hour process, you know, which, you know, that, I mean, maybe that's, that's probably just how the bulls raised. Now, maybe here's what I mean. Here's where this gets, here's where this gets interesting. Now, most likely without having looked anything up, if I were to just kind of take a guess, the, the matador tradition probably comes from the fact that number one, you know, when, when bullfighting was probably first done, they didn't have the kind of mechanisms that we do now for quickly and humanely right. putting down an animal. So getting the bull to be tired so that way they could deliver, you know, a one shot kill That's a was probably point, yeah. the element. You go in the wild and you get somebody to distract them like a rodeo clown or a matador with a cape. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, that, there's I could like see that. where well not even cavemen. I can think of something like this, you know, you know, five, six hundred years ago mm. being absolutely because firearms weren't exactly common in those right. days. But I mean Stonehenge so, was built to funnel animals to a point to where they the people could get them. You know, so it was all about it was all about directing the animals, tiring the animals out and let, that kind of stuff. But you're right. Now that we have I could, better methods I could, like the chick calling, right? What did they do before mm-hmm. they had grinders to these chicks? So, yeah, these are all good points. I mean, so so it's so it's kind of one of those things where, like a num- any number of things, it, I'm not going to say that it was wrong, because probably for the time when when these traditions had first developed, it was actually probably the best method that they had, and then it just got turned into like like a uh, like a huge festival, like a huge right. gathering because more you know, people wanted to see it and eat. <laughs> and exactly, and and you know you probably had you probably had kings and and rulers that would put on these magnificent magnificent displays in order to show their wealth, their prowess, whatever, and to feed the people. Exactly. So it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to sit down and say that the tradition itself Mm -hmm. was bad from the beginning, because to be perfectly honest, it might actually have been the best method that they had for the time. And it's something that's continued on. So it's, it's always one of those, it's like, you know, on one hand, on the other hand, and, and there's this constant balancing act of, you know, why a person or why a group does something that they do. And there was probably at one point, a very a very valid reason yeah. to do what they did and it was probably because it was the best method that they had at but the now time. it's just become uninvolved unevolved <clears throat> it yeah it 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 ha you know it, it isn't i would say like if we were to apply a certain standard of of hum, uh, humanity right. or humaneness to to the process you know 600 years ago it was probably the most humane method that there was now, under today's methods and under today's availabilities probably not but my my and my a little point in here about the steer the bull being tough meat is it this seems like a lot of work for food that's barely edible you know you have to think about it this way cows bulls have not always been the size that they have been right you know the meat was probably not as good as you wanted it to be but when you didn't have access to it hell any meat was better any than meat zero was better than that and but what i'm saying is now being evolved would you i mean it seems like a lot of work for just meat that's not very good well i mean well this is where i'm always gonna this is where i'm always going to kind of like play the advocate here mm-hmm. the devil's advocate who says it's not very good you know there are probably people who think that it's one of the finest delicacies that you can eat Yeah, in spain only one guy distributes it and he is so so rich and so happy about that he so and he treats it right so that it comes out good because you can do that with any meat i'm just it just seems weird like in around here we don't we don't i don't know it seems like a waste of time well, let, well, let, I mean, like let those bulls live and maybe bring in some better steer <laughs> and walk them through and then do the show i don't know well you know and here's the thing like for me it's it's one of those things like you know we like the way that i when i was when i did more hunting cured animals was it took it was a process to cure them and yeah, yeah. you know you can make the same argument that deer meat elk meat mm. antelope i'm just, or, I'm just or, kind uh, of searching for a solution pronghorn you know i think well i think the solution there really isn't a solution in this case and that's that's the real answer like 
if you know unless you go with a very specific if the solution is about food then yeah maybe a better source of food if the solution is about human you know dealing with animals humanely yeah, yeah. there's probably a different solution if the solution is about honoring tradition yeah there's probably a, uh, a continued slash better solution there's just not a great solution that involves all of this <laughs> there, there is a clause in the bullfighting to where the audience can pardon the bull and i think that's cool like i think they could have the bullfight tire the bull out and then put the bull out to pasture you know to live its life that way and then have meat <laughs> like, at the festival just have a festival you know what i mean like we uh we have county fairs all the time, but we don't watch them kill the animals, right? We don't, like, watch the animals run around and then eat them, right? Well, it depends on your county fair. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess so. I've never been to a county fair. Like, um, like, I've had pig at a county fair where I watched a pig race, but that doesn't mean they were the same pigs that, that fresh. Right. You know what I mean? No. And, and I think, you know, that's one of those things that really, really, really depends. You know, yeah. they're... You know, some, some places, and, and of course, this is the ones where, you know, a certain group of people hammer on this, you know, they're really understanding and attached to the way that, you know, animals are raised, animals yeah. are called, animals are cooked and served. It's just, you know, that's been part of, you know, agricultural life for, you know, mm -hmm. millennia. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, I don't have a problem with the meat eating and I don't care what you're eating. Like we talked about, it's just, right. it seems like, but the whole, uh, the running the running part is the issue because that's where the chances are they'll get hurt the most in an inhumane way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it start it did that's, start with like ranchers like getting their bulls excited so they could get them to town. Like, you know, how you right. how you drive steer. And then stupid kids in the region would be running in front of the bulls because they literally had nothing else to do. And so <clears throat> now in 2020 they haven't done this in three years by the way they just brought it back after the pandemic they could have just let this like slowly fade you know but that's i mean but then you have the then you have the greater question of of national tradition yeah I guess. you know letting whether or not you let national tradition fade you know as you know as a country that's only 250 year about 250 years old it's hard for us to sit down and and you know say that some country or some culture that's had you know, a tradition for, you know, mm -hmm. five, six, seven thousand years, right. whatever. Let let something that they've been doing for that long just go by the wayside. Okay. You know, uh, it's I'll just call it cringe it's, it's, then. I mean, there's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> <clears throat> we have traditions we've evolved from, you know, we we have more than one gender now. And so we we we've evolved past calling people just he or just she. You know, there's a new I don't even want to talk about that. There's something more important to talk about than that. Um Jeffrey, turns out that I I think I have weed killer in my urine and I don't know why. And you remember how I've talked about this before yeah, about how yeah, Cheerios yeah. is one of the largest uh, places where you find glyphosate. Yep. Yeah. You, you said it about three times last week. And then I went to, I went to Twitter and I went to the news and there was something that said 80% of all people. And I was, I clicked on that. And the first one was 80% of all Americans have glyphosate in their urine. And so like, but first, they, they did a study with like 2,500 people that was supposed to represent all of America. Do you know, because you're a data guy, you're an agriculturist, and you know all about this. So you're kind of like a guest on this. You're a guest expert mm -hmm. on this. I want to know mm -hmm. how, because how did they get the poll? Like, how did they decide, how can, how can this represent 80% of people when it's 2,500 people? So, oh... Sampling is a sampling is a fun. Yeah, but can we trust it? That's all I'm saying. Would I trust it? I personally would prefer more data. Right. Um, just because you know, without without knowing where where the samples come mm -hmm. from, like that's that's always my biggest problem. And they're going forward with that. They're funding that. They're 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 working on that. I mean, there's there's always that question of you know, there's always the question of what does this does does this question work for their study right now as a data person you kind of have to understand that there's always a starting point and that starting point is usually a lot smaller than you want it to be um because i mean 
you know, realistically, it's like, you know, do you want to go ask for a million vials of pee? No, you really don't. Right. Especially, especially if you, you know, if you start sampling and you don't find anything. So we're going to have eventually in a year or two be like 23andp.com. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> sorry. Just, feel sorry. I feel sorry for the post office. Another vial of piss. Another vial of right. piss. <laughs> but you know but that's the thing though is is that you know a lot of these places there's there's certain collection places or certain testing places okay. where people will go in they'll provide the sample then that sample gets met you know that sample will be medically collected by a research facility and then it gets sent on to wherever else or they'll test it right there and they'll send the results on right. to um so or you go to your doctor and they just add it to the list of things that's tested for so that's so that's always one of the things that's that's okay. really interesting about some of these tests and the way that they perform. So is this even worth paying so, attention to then? Glyphosate? What absolutely. is it? what is it? Glyphosate? Yeah, glyphosate. So glyphosate. So glyphosate is the active ingredient uh, in a chemical called Roundup. Mm. Roundup, uh, if you're familiar with it, is known to kill anything that's green. Right. Everybody uh, knows what Roundup is, unless you're in the inner city. Now, here's one of the fun things that most no, people don't realize. What? So, so to give you a little bit of history on something that I, I actually wrote a research paper on back in, yes. uh, back in high school. Yes. And so, this, so my research paper is 20 years old on this. Um, so one of the things about the time, you know, about Roundup Ready stuff, everybody, you know, freaked out about this whole, about the whole idea that a plant being Roundup Ready isn't natural. Um, number one, that's actually not correct. How we found out about it is actually far more sinister than you most people realize. Um, so, how did how did we found find out what Roundup Ready was? So, Roundup we knew killed everything that was green. It was a great weed killer. Um, it was a great uh, way to you know take fields and make sure that they were barren and free of weeds before you did your planting. Why? It was a great post-emergent. Why? So why yeah i'm so, sorry the whole thing is where do we i'm it's not the whole thing but where do weeds come from and why do we even need to get rid of them so when it comes down to like the grains that you eat when you're harvesting your crops there are a lot of materials that end up getting taken up into into the into the, your combine right right some of those things are you know they're weeds they are a non-desired plant they either have no nutritional value. Um, they spread really easy. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're annual plants that, you know, take over specific, you know, they take over, you know, places that are fallow and, and barren. And they're not exactly what you want to have in your crop. And when a farmer goes to sell their crop, depending on how much um, extra material there is in the crop, they actually get docked uh, pay-wise on all of that extra okay. material because that all has to be sorted out, that all has to be cleaned out before it can go on to like your, whether it's your chemical processing in order for that to become next year's seed crop or even to become your cereal grains for the food that you're going to eat. Okay. You can't just have thistle showing up in your food, unfortunately. Right, right. That's a good point. That's what I wanted to... So, yeah. so all that to go back to the way that farmers look to control this was through spraying their, their summer fallow. So what that did was that kept all of these plants that came up from going to seed. Right. And so you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have that material showing up in your crop next year right. or, or that year, depending on when you spray, you spray before you seed. but you, you, you know, if you sprayed before you seeded, you know, that would, that would help reduce the amount of potential weeds you'd have. Right, right. Problem is, is, is that as ground gets tilled, weeds like to take over areas that have been disturbed. So every time you mm. turn the soil, it gives you a new place for seeds to potentially settle in and grow. Gotcha. But also any seed material that is in there, a lot of, a lot of seeds can stay dormant for up to like 10 years wow. so you might have weeds that were already in the soil that thanks to you turning it now have a better chance of actually germinating okay now roundup ready this is where this gets fun everybody thinks that roundup ready just magically appeared and that somehow we started spraying our crops with all this stuff well it's actually not the case so 
the the company that created Roundup Monsanto. actually Monsanto the they actually discovered that you know there was a plant that did not react to glyphosate not because it was not because they were out doing a bunch of testing but because they actually had a chemical leak in one of their waterways right and this plant didn't die from expo exposure to glyphosate so now instead of being alarmed they went holy shit what if we could take whatever this is and put this into crops so that way uh, you could spray this when the crops came out and that would get farmers the ability to get rid of all of the weeds all the time all of the crop and i mean when you think about it it's actually a very brilliant idea mm -hmm. farmers would no longer have to worry as much about whether or not they're going to have secondary material in their crop right and it's a it's fantastic it's 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 exciting so and here's results of production the are they prove themselves right better fruit right. bigger fruit lasts longer it tastes better it you don't have better. it's not even it's 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 not even about any of that it's about the fact that number one your crops are not competing with right the with other plants number one and number two it's about the fact that now your profit margin isn't going affected yeah. by you know all these other conditions exactly so so <clears throat> Then you end up with this. Now, now you end up with the question. Now, this is like I want to say late '80s, early '90s. Mm -hmm. How how do you take this thing that we found and make this other thing? Now, there's two ways that you can make this happen. There is natural selection, which is you plant a bunch of seeds, you spray the field, and if it comes up uh, and doesn't die. You have now this little group of seeds that is potentially, you know, Resi free of, resistant. you know, it's resistant to Roundup. Right. And you have to sit there and do that over and over and over and over and over and over until you actually get enough of a seed crop in order to do that. Right. Or you can find out what is the what is the gene that makes the plant Roundup ready in this one, but not in this one, and then basically take over that natural selection and make that happen a lot faster. Right. And that's and that's what science looks to do. Where it is, they takes yeah, it takes genes from one plant, puts you know, splices them into another plant, in order to elicit a similar response. And we did that with plant splicing before we did genetic splicing. Like we've always oh, been evolving our crops. So this was just we've this was a jump that. in the evolution, though. It yeah, it was it was essentially. It was essentially like uh, it was a shortcut. It right. was a wormhole, essentially, if you want to think about it that way. It was it was warp drive. Right. It right. you know it took it took something that existed naturally in another plant, and what scientists theorized would eventually be available in this plant, but just made the process happen a lot faster. Right. So, cut to now you have different Roundup Ready crops. I think oats, Roundup Ready oats was the first crop, if I remember correctly, mm. uh, to actually be Roundup Ready. Because one of the things that you end up with in oats is wild oats. And oats and wild oats are not the same. Um, they are not nearly as pleasant. They are, you know, they have sharp little barbs in them. It's, it's a pain in the ass, okay. but getting rid of those wild oats was actually a huge benefit for farmers. Now, imagine if you could take that and put that into a bunch of different crops. It's really exciting. Durham, um, I spring wheat, Durham. winter wheat, mm -hmm. oats. Um, you could, you could do this to uh canola you could do this to flax you could do this to gar you know corn, chickpeas right? or garbanzo beans corn you could do this to any number of uh, soybeans you could do this to any number right. of crops out there but one of the things that i postulated in in my paper and it was a concern at the time was the thing about natural selection is is that the more that you use something the more likely a plant is to evolve a protection to it okay and so my question that I postulated at the time was, are we going to see the rise of Roundup-resistant weeds? 
And the answer is absolutely. You could, you absolutely could. And, uh, because like anything else, if you spray enough times, mm -hmm. eventually there's going to be one time where something has reproduced and the seed is going to come out and it's going to be roundup ready. Well, yeah. Cause the, and you're going to end up, there was that one that's, the initial plant that was roundup ready. Right. And so a weed a, exactly. could happen with a weed too. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's evolution. Mm. The idea that plants don't evolve the same way plants actually evolve a lot faster simply because they have many generations within time that we have one generation. Right. So the idea that this couldn't happen was, you know, a big problem. Now here's the thing, like anything else, if you use something to label, it should minimize the effects of what you're using. However, as humans go, well, if a little is good, a lot is better, right? That's the way we generally do it. So you run into this problem of, are we using the appropriate amount of chemicals on our crops? Now, one of the things that we have found uh, particularly problematic, especially over the last 60, 70 years, is you end up seeing a lot of these chemicals end up in waterways. Uh, for example, where it's coming from. Okay. So, so for example, uh, the more chemical that you use, and depending on the timing of using it, the more, runoff. The more likely you are to have runoff. Uh, the salt and sea, for example, is a great, um, is a great, uh, example of this. Mm -hmm. So the salt and the salt and sea didn't have a natural outlet. So the water would just pool up in there and pool up in there, but it didn't actually refresh. It didn't go anywhere. Right. So when, when farmers during that time were spraying all these chemicals around during the sixties, it wasn't a big deal because you know, there were fish in there, people were boating in there. It was like this great destination that everybody wanted to go to, but 20, 30 years of, of agricultural runoff poisoned the water and it started killing the fish. The place started to become very alkaline. It smelled really bad. And suddenly it was no longer a destination place because you don't, you weren't having water refresh, right. you know, they closed off the source of where the water was coming from. And all of that runoff contributed to just essentially nuking the fish population, which of course then turned this into a horrible smell. Then you have the grand question of, do I want my kids baiting in the chemicals of the salt and sea? And the answer was an overwhelming no. No, right. So but that's how we also if, get E. coli in our lettuce, right? Like because of the the runoff, the infected runoff that actually goes into other areas. No, no. E. E. Coli is more of an issue of fecal matter, right? Yeah, but I heard it was from livestock runoff that went into the livestock runoff is different than livestock runoff is different than chemical runoff from it's a different yeah, agricultural yeah, runoff. Okay. Yes. In different agricultural runoff, but yes. Okay. Um, I didn't want to take us too far so, off, so I'll just, yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so, so all that to say, if you have that much runoff mm -hmm. from using different chemicals, the question then begs, if, if you're in places that don't experience a lot of runoff or it's getting into your water table, then what are the chances are that the plant is actually intaking that into its seed, depending on when you spray. Okay. So one of the things that, uh, I had postulated at the time was we had no idea how much of it was going to turn up in our food and we didn't know what that would look like. Right. Now, obviously if you have glyphosate in, uh, if you have just a bottle of roundup, you don't drink the bottle of Roundup. That'll kill you. Right. But if you dilute it down, could you drink it? Yeah. It's just not going to be good for you. Well, so in what way? And is Roundup just straight glyphosate or is it other? Like, no, it's, it, there's, there's, I mean, there's inert chemicals okay. in there. Yeah. As I'm well. just curious. Okay. But the active ingredient is glyphosate. But that's what, it, yeah. If you pour, a bottle of Roundup into a five-gallon bottle of water, you might be able to drink it, but you're not going to feel good. And there's short and long-term consequences to that. But yeah, how does it get? How does it get into the food? How does it get into my? Does it get into now, my tomatoes? Does it get into my cucumbers? You know. Now that's now that's the grand question. So, any crop that is Roundup ready, 
is going to have probably the potential to have it absorb into the food. Now, here's where this gets fun, because now we get to go back into the genetics. Are there genetics that inhibit the uptake of glyphosate? Maybe from I the root, right? don't know. That's what I'm. That, exactly. That's where my mind from just the root, was. From from the root or from the berry, right? Because remember, uh, wheat is not it, wheat is a seed. It's 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 berry, uh, the berry of the 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 grass. That yeah, is. So it's so it's an interesting concept. Um, I love my bread with wheat berries in it. Oh my god! So mm, so one of the things that we have to consider and take into account in this is is that. At different stages of seed development, your your plant is uptaking a lot of water mm-hmm. because it's trying to plump up that berry. Now, depending on when you spray, you're going to end up with you know a high level of water intake. And if you're spraying a ton of chemical on your crop, there is a really good chance that number one, it's going to get down to the soil, it's going to get into the soil, and that root is going to take it up. Now you run into a, a many numbers of questions here. And I'm, and unfortunately this is a place where I'm not necessarily going to have all the answers. Okay. Over time, chemicals break down. That's very much the case. Glyphosate is supposed to have, it's supposed to be inert inside of 48 hours. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's one of the bonuses of, of glyphosate because, you know, when you look at any number of different chemicals that you can spray, their half-life, the half-life of the chemical can actually be very long. For example, uh, example, Tordon can have a very long half-life, especially if you don't use it according to label. The reason I know this is because my stepfather decided that uh, he wanted to try and spray our, our little garden uh for weeds you know before we planted but he fucking hosed the shit out of it with tordon and nothing grew in that spot for 10 years wow and that's the after, evolution i want to say it was killers right there and i'm and and i want to say that after i well i don't even know that that necessarily counts as the evolution so much as the this is what happens if you don't use it according but i mean to shortening the shortening the life right the half-life right that and making a pesticide that is more controlled than is always there that's what they've right. always been working towards I, hope. I will say though that you know my mom and i still joke about the fact that you know after like three or four years we tried to plant some crops down where our little garden was and the only thing that came up was corn and it was purple and twisted like something out of a fucking horror movie wow. it was really weird so but but that was the biggest question. If farmers aren't using your product according to label, then what's happening to the crop itself? Mm. Now, you always run into that question of, are farmers using more because they're not reading the label, or are they using more because the weeds that they're trying to treat are becoming resistant? Right. Or do they just not know enough and they think more is better? That's not... So here's the problem, is, is, is that for farmers... Um, I believe in every state you have to get a what is called a commercial or an agricultural applicator's license. You actually have to go and you have to test and you have to you have to show that number one you can read the fucking label. Right. So it's it's so you, that's one of the biggest problems is is that you know the company itself says this is what we have determined the safe limits to be. Are those the safe limits? That's a that's that's a whole different question. Mm-hmm. But the company can't control whether or not you are actually using the product yeah. according User to user applications may vary. Exactly. So you know, for example, you know, you might get enough chemical to treat, let's say, a thousand acres, but you don't have a thousand acres that needs to be treated. Right. You maybe just have a hundred. So instead of using that that amount that's for a thousand acres on a thousand acres you're using the amount on a thousand acres on just a hundred acres and you're just essentially nuking that spot exactly because you don't know better so or you just think more is better you do know better you're just like well fuck it if a little is good a lot is better you yeah, run into right, what we right. call the we, we call it the farmer's dilemma if the price is bad you grow more crop but if the price is good you grow more crop so anything that affects your ability to grow crop right. you want to handle as quickly as possible okay so that then leads into this whole question of what happens when you apply way too much chemical over an area and it gets into your food yeah now 
there is, I think, the million dollar question. Because this is one of those things where uh, I don't know that we know enough at this point. There is a lot to say that are, are people getting sick from Roundup? Absolutely. I do believe that because it's a chemical. And well, if you're not wearing the proper protective gear when you're applying it okay, or using it, because the thing is, is that Roundup ah. isn't just available on a commercial schedule. You can also buy it at fucking Walmart to use it in your okay. own yard. Well, so uh, users may absorb it. Absolutely. It's a chemical. It's yeah. a spray. If you get it on your skin, it's gonna get in. you. That's yes. just the way that any chemical works. That's the truth. Now, I'm going to preface this by a little story that actually happened to me. My grandmother's ex-husband was a farmer and he used to play a fun game with the kids, uh, with, with the boys anyways, called right on the outside of the spray coop and let me know when the weeds are coming so I can turn up the spray. I didn't have any fucking PPE on. I didn't have any masks or anything. And when I came back home from a summer of literally, you know, spending part of my days riding on the spray coop, I was a fucking mess. I was wheezing. I was sick. And and there's honestly a lot of questions about whether or not like my lung problems developed because I was literally riding on the outside of a fucking spray coop Mm -hmm. being exposed to chemicals. Yeah, I got you. My uncle used to Because I was getting that shit. My uncle used to have Mm -hmm. me uh, clean concrete floors with sulfuric acid with no protection at all, you know? Right. And I mean, under, you know, if, and I guarantee you that if you looked at what the recommended PPE is for dealing with Roundup, it it probably isn't fucking nothing. Right. So once again, you have this issue of the company might have laid out exactly what the expectations were for you to use their product, that you need to wear goggles, Mm -hmm. that you need to wear a mask, that you need to wear protective clothing, that you need to wear, you know, I mean, there's even chemicals out there where they flat out tell you that if you're, when you're mixing the chemical, you need to be wearing a respirator. Yeah. And, and there are chemicals that, you know, working on the farm anyway, (laughs) which right. So there were, but there were chemicals that I worked with on the farm where mm-hmm. we had respirators. Right. And when it was time to work with those chemicals, you put on your respirator. That said, this Roundup has become a chemical that has not just been commercially available for agriculture, but commercially available for anybody who owns a home. Right. You can literally go in and, and buy the mix at Walmart, go back and nuke your driveway, yeah. nuke your garden. Just hope there's no breeze I mean, that dr- blows in. You know, and so you run into this issue of you know with all of these chemicals that have been available, if you know for for residential use, you now have what I would call a system of cross contamination. You have the issue of you know is the glyphosate in our food really the problem? Now, I say this because I don't have an answer without knowing whether or not. It is an inert version because remember, glyphosate is supposed to be inert after 48 hours. Yeah, that's what's been in my head since you said it. Like, what does it matter if there's a glyphosate in my pee if it's going to be inert in 48 hours? That's the grand question. So if it's but so if it's inert in 48 hours, is there actually a health problem with it in the food? The right. answer is, is I don't know, and I and it does warrant further study. I want to say Monsanto and the people that bought uh, Roundup and the EPA. They all say there is not a problem. It is it isn't a carcinogen. But there was a there was a court case that said they got to look into it further. And 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 I absolutely would hope and expect that they do. But now, when you have glyphosate and it's not inert and it's getting onto your skin, right. it's getting into your lungs because you're out spraying in your yard, yeah. you're out spraying in the field. There, I would honestly really actually actively expect that there would be health problems associated with that. You're supposed to be wearing protective equipment and dumbasses like myself have not done that in the past. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you we, we all go, oh, well, if it's available over the counter, it should be safe, right? Yeah. Well, shit, how many poisons do we own know that are quote unquote safe that we can buy over the counter that tell you don't fucking use this unless you're using X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Just because it's available over the counter doesn't mean it's necessarily safe. Oh, I agree. I agree. So so you run into that question of cross-contamination, especially in a data realm, which is where I'm headed with this. The amount of people who would potentially just eat glyphosate, like this is where the science comes in. 
does it surprise me that 80% of people might be exposed to glyphosate either through their food or through their own personal dealings? No, that number seems, that number would seem very feasible to me. However, the question is of exposure. What is your exposure? And this is where we can actually test in a number of different ways, because there's going to be people who, let's say they don't eat anything that has glyphosate in it. All they do is they eat, you know, the most organic of the organic. No, no chemicals, no pesticides, no nothing. Okay, great. That'll give us, that can give us a potential baseline. You're going to have the people who uh, are literally just eating what they buy at the grocery store, Cheerios, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to be the ones that just are only exposed to, exposed to glyphosate in the food. And so you then run into this whole question of whether or not, you know, that is the problem. Then you're going to have the people who may or may not be exposed to glyphosate in their food, but they're definitely going to be you know, exposed to glyphosate because they are using the chemical. Or in their water mm-hmm. supply, I just want to add. In their water, potentially in their water supply. Now, local water is supposed to be, you know, local mm-hmm. water systems are supposed to be testing what all is in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question really then becomes, you know, is that, you know, is there glyphosate in the water or, you know, how, how they're looking at that. There are so many ways that you can test this cross-contamination of glyphosate to figure out where is the actual threat. Right. And that is where things get really difficult. And so from my perspective, there's still a lot of unknowns and I'm not going to pretend to have the answers and I'm not going to pretend to say that, oh no, it's fine in your food, but not, right, it's, right. it's fine in your food as well. It, that I, I can't say that That's, it's I, I something you should, as a scientist, yeah. as a scientist, you know, I'm very comfortable with, with, with saying things like that and saying, I don't know. Well, and the answer is, is I don't know because nobody has studied it yet, or there hasn't been enough studies on it yet, but I would argue that this particular study is going to lead us down that question of, is there actually a problem here? Right. Yeah, sure. The EPA, Monsanto, the company that bought it, I want to say it's Bayer now. Bear, yeah. um, they might all say that it's fine mm-hmm. and they might all be right, but they might not be. Right. And, and, and the thing is, is that there just hasn't been enough studies done on it to find out you know, if it's a problem, where does the problem actually come from? Is it coming from the food? Is it coming from the use of the chemical either in agriculture or in residential? Is it both? Or is it your your body? Is it just your body unable to deal with it? A weak, a weaker body with a chemical in it is going to react differently than a fit body. A young body and an old body are going to react differently to a chemical in it repeatedly. You know, if it's a, exactly. if it's an inert in four hours, but you eat something that has it in it heavily every day, it's going to build up. It's going to be there and it's going to hurt you. I got, I'm just tuning in because, Hey everybody, thank you for listening to public access America. Come back Thursday. Cause we're not done with this conversation, but we have other stuff too. Love you. Bye. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you nobody, is gonna hit as hard as life. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do to your country. I poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome welcome to Public public Access access America. Yes, we can. Sunday live stream time YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter, Twitter. Prove what 
Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Smart Public, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.